0: We're in Ephesians chapter 4. If you guys want to open your Bibles there, we'll continue in our study through the book of Ephesians. Um, we, um, we've, we've broken uh, chapter 4 down into four parts. This is the fourth and final part. We'll be moving into Ephesians chapter 5 next week. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, we're going to finish Ephesians chapter 4. Some of you still making your way there. I'll, I'll tell you a story by way of introduction. In, uh, in 1894... The Baltimore Orioles went uh, to Boston uh, to play a baseball game, and uh, it was just a, a routine baseball game, routine on the schedule. But nothing about the game was routine. When they got there, um, they ended up. Uh, it was really, it was really an intense game. And the Baltimore Orioles, they were an amazing team, like just a brilliantly gifted, amazing team. That 1894 team. Um, several members of that team were uh, were. Incredibly gifted, the team batting average was was over three hundred. That's each each batter had a had a three hundred batting average, so just crazy. And they were incredible cheats as well. So they they would do you know just the, the, they had steel plates built into their field so that when they would hit you know they would bounce the ball there after they'd hit it and it would bounce over the infield. Uh, and, uh, and and maybe why they had a over three hundred batting average each person, they'd have their groundskeepers kind of. You know, manicure the their home field so that all their bunts would stay fair, uh, and things like that. Um, but uh, really gifted players. Um, one of their guys, um, his name was John McGraw, and uh, he, I think still to this day, this is an 1894 team. Still to this day, I think he's he's the the third he has the third highest on base average. He's just behind Babe Ruth. And just behind uh, Ted Williams, I think. So um, that's the extent of my baseball knowledge. At any rate, um, the, this team w- came to Boston. It's a regular day, regular schedule, but you know, man, the things got hot, things got contested, and uh, John McGraw gets into a fight with Boston's third baseman. Uh, and the fight pretty soon it it spreads. Now both of the benches clear. Uh, just going crazy. It spreads into the stands. People in the stands are fighting. Somebody sets fire to the stands. The entire stadium burned to the ground. Not only did the entire stadium burn to the ground, but 107 other buildings in the Boston area all caught fire as well. This this was a major deal. Benjamin Franklin said, anger is never without a reason, but it's seldom with a good one. Uh, and uh, that's the big idea of our message today as we continue studying through Ephesians. We're, we're going to look today at how Christians should handle issues of anger, bitterness and forgiveness. Now, let me just see if you're paying attention by way of a show of hands. How many of you have ever been angry? Can I see a show of hands? That's just a, that's just a participation question because we should all have our, our hands up there, right? How many of you have, have struggled or dealt with issues of, of bitterness and resentment? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, so I'm, so I'm preaching to the right audience, right? I mean, we're all this is stuff that we can uh, relate to. Um, here's the thing, and I won't ask for a show of hands on this, but I, here's what I know. I know that several of you right now today are dealing with issues of bitterness, anger, forgiveness. And, uh, and you've come to the right place because the Lord wants to speak to you today through His Word. Yeah, and so what I'd like to do right now, and I hadn't prepared to do this, but the Spirit's just leading me. What I'd like to do is just pray again. Because I think for some of us, we really need to hear what God's going to say. And, and we might put that wall up. So, so let's just pray. Father, as you speak to us about, uh, about these issues of anger and bitterness... And, and, and issues of forgiveness. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to really comprehend. And give us a willing spirit to allow you to do the healing work and the, the, the growing work that you want to do in us. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right. Um, Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 4. And we'll pick it up right where, uh, where we left off. Um, that's in Verse 26. Paul says this, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, you know, again, if you were here last week, you know as we go through the book of Ephesians, the first half of it talks about our wealth in Christ and the second half of the book talks about our walk in Christ. And so the idea here is that the wealth that we have in Christ should translate to to a healthy walk. Uh, it's kind of like this, I used this analogy last week, if you've got kids, they enjoy your wealth at home, uh, but a time comes when the wealth, that, your wealth that they enjoy, has to translate into their walk. They've got to be healthy, you know, five-year-old enjoying your wealth, that's cute. Fifty-year-old enjoying your wealth, not so cute. Comes to a point in time when you got to grow up, you got to put feet on your faith, and so that's the the, the whole idea of Ephesians, uh, the, the book of Ephesians, first half, Paul talks about our wealth in Christ. Second half is, hey, you know, guess what? It's time to grow up and get a job and get to it and get busy. And so it translates from our wealth in Christ to our walk in Christ. So now it's intensely practical. Now we're looking at does a Christian's walk looks like. And Paul last week, he says, look, the Christian walk is dramatically different than the world's walk the world walks in a particular way and it's just natural and it's just the way that things go and there's a course to this world just like there's a course to a river and there's not a lot that that you're going to do necessarily to divert it. But a Christian can't go according to the flow, can't go according to the course of this world. So we're looking at this and we're looking at these practical issues now and Paul here, he's dealing with anger. And uh, man, he says, be angry but do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. What do we do with that? Well, The first important principle of anger management, and I don't title my messages, but if I was going to title this one, I'd call it anger management, okay? So the first important principle of anger management, if you're taking notes, write it down, it's not sin to be angry, it's what you do with your anger. It's not sin to be angry, it's what you do with your anger. See, anger in and of itself, it's not a primary emotion, it's a secondary emotion, in other words, anger is, well, it always stems from something else. It always is the result of something. It, 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 it gives birth uh, from envy or from jealousy or from pride or from fear or from sorrow or when you see injustice. These are the things that, that are primary, and then they give birth to anger. And, and so this is why the Bible um, exhorts us over and over again to exercise prayerful discernment where our anger is concerned. For instance, Proverbs 19.11 says, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Now that word discretion there, it literally means insight, it means understanding, it means prudence, uh, which is which is wisdom skillfully applied. Uh, and, and so this idea is that we need to understand where our anger anger is coming from and 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 when we do when we step back and we take a look at okay why am i angry right now well what we'll realize is that the majority of time our anger comes from some sort of sinful self-centered focus that's, that's usually the case. Usually if we step back and we really look at our anger, we want to make it all about it. He did this and she said that and they did this. But really, if, if you step back from it and you, and you prayerfully look at anger, the majority of the time, you know, you're going to find, oh, you insulted me, you cheated me, you slighted me, you wronged me, but it's, but it, it, it's all about, what's the common denominator in all of those phrases? Me. My focus is on me. It's about, you know, I didn't get what I had coming, or you, you know, didn't treat me in a way that I thought was right, or, you know, whatever it is, it's all a focus on me. Um, This is why the writer of Proverbs says that it's to man's glory to overlook a transgression. Writer of Proverbs also says, He who is slow to anger is is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit... uh, than than he who takes the city. This is also why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Don't you just love those, those sayings of Jesus right there? Those are the ones where you're like, oh, I just fail so miserably. We all do. Having said that, sometimes anger is justified. Sometimes there is what's called a righteous anger. Um, you know, these are situations uh, where you see abuse taking place, or you see uh, oppression taking place, or when you see molestation taking place. There was a, a heinous news report just came out yesterday about some kids that were found in Northern California. Uh, and, and I became homicidal in my thoughts when I saw that. Frankly, I, I, I'm like, somebody needs to just string those people up and put them out of my misery because this is, this is not right. And, and, you know, there is a righteous anger. What's that stemming from? It's stemming from the fact that they chained their kids up and were starving them. That is, that is wrong. And it's right to be anger, just to be angry uh, with those type of situations, to, to, to have a righteous anger at, at something very unrighteous and very wrong that's taken place. Um, Jesus expressed uh, and demonstrated uh, righteous anger in how he carried himself. He went into the temple, and the money changers had set up these tables, and they're they're making money hand over fist, and they're and they're they're taking advantage of the people, and they're really hindering the people in their worship of God. and And he blew his stack. He's like, my father's house should be a house of prayer. You've made a den of thieves. And he, so he goes around you know, knocking the, the money changers' tables over. We see examples in Scripture of him driving them out with, with a whip that he, he weaved himself. Think about that. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I just put myself. These are one of those situations where I think about Jesus, and as he's weaving it, he's like, this is going to hurt, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. It's a, it's a righteous anger. And and here, the, the key is that, and this is the key of this verse, the key in dealing with anger, we can't allow anger to drive us to sin, we, we, we are exhorted to be angry and, and not to sin, okay? And so we can't let anger drive us to sin. Um, Billy Sunday, who was a, a famous uh, preacher back at the turn of the century, he was, uh, he was a Greg Laurie type, an evangelist, and... Um, he, he, at one of his evangelism messages, he's preaching, you know, the, the gospel. And this gal responds to it, and he's counseling her afterwards. And basically, she says something to the effect of, you know, there's nothing wrong with losing my temper. I blow up, and then it's all over. And he said, Madam, so does a bomb. Look at all the damage it causes. And sometimes we have that attitude. It's like, yeah, I blow my stack, but then I'm over it. Yeah, but the, the damage is already done. And it's, it's, all, it's already out there. Remember, my mom used to teach you know Sunday school class for kids, and she was teaching through through James that talks about the the tongue and it's a, this fire, uh, and and she was conveying the the message that look your words hurt they cause harm you and you can't get them back they're out there they're gone it's not like you can hit the rewind but they're already out there, and, and to illustrate her point she she brought in a, a feather pillow she cut a little tiny hole in it and she told the kids to go have a pillow fight with this with this thing with this feather pillow outside. And it's a windy day. Well, all those feathers go. And then the kids come back in with a pillowcase. She's like, oh, I'm going to need those feathers back. The kids are like, feathers are gone. Mama said, yeah. You remember what we were talking about in the book of James? That's what happens with your words. They're out there. And away they go. You can't get them back. They They do serious damage. So... So the issue here is, man, we have to be really so careful to, to, to take a, a prayerful walk with our anger, and we have to discern, man, where, where's this anger coming from? Is this a righteous anger, or is this really come down to a sinful, self-centered focus? Now, I want you to notice the second half of Paul's exhortation there in verse 26. Uh, He says, be angry and do not sin. Here it is. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. This this illustrates, or brings to to the surface the second important principle when dealing with anger um, and anger management. And that is, anger can be prevented from becoming sin if a strict time limit is placed on it. Anger can be prevented from becoming sin if a strict time limit is placed on it. Now, let me use my marriage as an example for this. You just got to put a strict time limit on your marriage. So it's like, you know, you just, after five years, I'm done. I'm going to be angry, so I'm done with you. That's, that's the time limit, right? Right? No, it's not. That's what a lot of people think. That's why our divorce rate is almost 50%. Uh, it's actually 51%, but what's factored into that is people that have been divorced and remarried several times, so that's what comprises the 51% tally, but that's pretty bad even of itself, right? And people sort of have the attitude, and, and the divorce rate is sort of a, 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 an indicator of you know, how we... Think about anger. I'm I'm angry with you, I'm done with you. The 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 cure is to put you away, and then you know I'll I'll move on. Well you you take half of the problem with you when you do that. Join my marriage for Brenda and I, we're dealing with anger. Um one of the things that we've discovered, and and we're gonna in, in Ephesians chapter five, we're gonna talk about the husband and wife relationship, and we'll get more uh, into the dynamics of the husband and wife relationship here in a few weeks. It'll be great. Um <laughs> So, um, if for some reason, three-quarters of my notes are all about the women. Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's okay. But one of the things we've discovered is that, you know, all of our arguments aren't neatly packaged and done at the end of the day. You guys discovered that? Well, you, you have an argument, and, it's, and, and they don't always come at convenient times, and, and so now here we have an argument. Now we got a disagreement. Now we got an issue. And now I got this verse hanging over my head, that I, in my head that I'm not supposed to let the sun go down on my wrath. What the heck am I supposed to do? Some people mistakenly think, well, what this means is what you got to work it. You got to stay awake and you, you, whatever it takes before we get to bed, we got we to gotta settle this. We got to figure this thing out. That's not practical. And it doesn't, it's not real life. Some issues, it's not like a sitcom or, you know, a TV show where problem, you know, situation, crisis, solution all happens nice and tidy with a bow by the end of the show. Life's not like that. So what Brenda and I do is that when it's time for bed, it's time for bed. And so we will simply say, you know, in, in the midst of intense disagreement sometimes, Hey, you know what? It's time to reaffirm the relationship. Look, we don't agree on this. Clearly, we got more to talk about in this situation. But right now, it's time for bed. So let me just reaffirm. Look, I'm your husband. You're my wife. Just as the Lord says to me, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I say that to you. Look, I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. We're going to figure this thing out. Right now, it's just time to say I love you and good night. Let's, let, 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 let's, put, let's put this day to bed. And so this is the idea, and this is the attitude, this is one illustration of, of, of this, this, this factor, this principle, that we got to put a strict time limit. Let me tell you the alternative. The alternative is, if we don't put a time limit on our anger, if we don't simply say, okay, you know what, this thing, it's time to put this thing to bed. If we don't do this, it just keeps ringing in our heads, Right, And you know that that issue that you let just ring in your head. And it's just echoing there, just ringing. And it's been described this way, that a lot of the times when we have this anger that we hold on to, it's picture a bell in a bell tower. And what do you have? You got the bell and you got a rope that's affixed to the bell and the rope hangs down. And what do you do? You crank on that rope and then the bell rings out. And a lot of us, that's what it is with our anger. We got, and you got a person's face maybe in your mind right now and you're thinking, I'll ring that bell, you know, and it just over and over. And then he said this and then she said this and then they did that. And it's, you just keep yanking on that rope. And the thing about that is that, it, that if you've ever, been to a bell tower, if you've ever rung a bell, if you've ever seen one rung, you know how it works, you pull the rope, the thing swings back and forth and it rings, and when you let go of the rope, there's still some centrifugal force, isn't there? There's still some motion on that bell, so it keeps ringing even after you you let go of the rope, but eventually, that, that pendulum slows down, the ringing slows down, the echoing slows down, and the bell goes away. And your anger is the same way. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. When you've got an issue, you've got to let go of the rope. That's the point. It's a matter of, look, at a certain point, man, I, I just got to let go of this thing. Listen, that's why Paul says in, in verse 21, uh, nor give place to the devil. Do You see that? He says, don't give place to the devil. Don't give the devil a foothold. Um, the Bible teaches that Satan... It's his work to accuse, to divide family of, the family of God and to sow discord among us. This is what Satan does. And when we harbor anger, bitterness, resentment in our hearts, what ends up happening is that we do Satan's work for him. We do the devil's work for him. As a matter of fact, look again there at verse, verse 27. Where it says, nor give place to the devil. If you're given to take notes, this is interesting. You might want to circle that word devil. Nearby, here's what you could write. You could write the word slanderer because that's literally what that word means. That's got some, some significant implications. Because here's the idea. The idea is that when we hold on to anger, we give place to the slanderer. And, and we give place to him either because we've provided the enemy with, with ammunition to slander the, the one that, that we're angry with, or even worse, we become a slanderer ourselves. And this, this is, I mean, just take a walk with that about giving place to the devil. The, the idea here is that if you hang on to anger and bitterness and resentment, what happens is you yourself become a little devil. That's literally what, what, what the, the idea of this means. You give place to the devil. I'll illustrate it this way. In, in Acts chapter 11, when, when you, you, you read there, basically, it, it talks about how Paul and Barnabas, uh, you know, they're there in the, in the church of, uh, of Antioch, and that's the very first place that Christians were called Christians. It tells us that in Acts chapter 11. And it was a, it was a, de, it was a de, de, derogatory term that people used. It, basically, it was little Christs. You're a little Christ running around, you know, kind of thing. Um, but it, but it, it's true. And, and the issue was that, well, if you, if you just kind of step back and you look at the story about what happened. A Paul, or a Barnabas, rather, he, he's in Antioch. He sees all this cool stuff that God's doing. And he thinks, you know who needs to be here? Paul needs to be here. Now, at this point in time, um, Paul was in Tarsus. And the and the disciples were still a little sketchy about Paul because, you know, he just not too long ago been Saul killing Christians, had a, you know, the ultimate come to Jesus moment, and now God's transforming his life, but there's still that, you know, Christian contingency that's like is, you know, what's he got behind his back kind of deal. You know, they they just don't know where Paul is, what he's all about. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, man, he goes, he gets Paul. He's like, dude, this is crazy work going on in Antioch. You need to come be a part of it. So he brings Paul into this, and there's this cool dynamic taking place such that now people go, oh, you know, they start giving a nickname to, to all these people. Look at all the Christians. Look at all the little Christs. Well, think about that. Jesus said in John's gospel that all will know you're my disciples by the love you have, one for another. You think about the love that, that Barnabas just extended to Paul to bring him into this mix. You think about that loving, uni- unifying community work happening in Antioch such that the whole world would look on and go, look, at, it's all, there's all a bunch of little Christs. You're like, well, what's your point? Contrast. There's a bunch of little Christs. And now back in our text, what we see is is Paul is saying, look, be angry, do not sin, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Don't let your life become such a thing that people look at you and they go, oh, they don't say, there's a Christian. They say, well, there's a little devil right there. Don't give place to the slanderer. Don't become a slanderer. Don't be that person that, that's, that's, you know, living their life uh, in that way. Take a walk with that. How convicting is that? Man, when we slander, we give give a place within our lives to the devil. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are of an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil. And here it is, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord Among the brethren. These things the Lord hates. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. I mean, God hates it. Now you think about that. Okay, false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Not one of us is innocent from that charge. We've all had times when we've sown discord. We've all had times when we have. Uh, did you hear so and so? You did this, you know. Did you hear about such and such? And I'm that, that person bugs me, and you know whatever it is. And in, in, in church, you know it's it's the exact same way. Oh, that guy! Look at him. He's always acting that way. And you know you get your whole group of people and and, and and talking and all. Man, so Paul continues verse verse twenty nine. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. It's interesting. He says, let no corrupt word. That word corrupt, if you you wanted to circle it nearby, you could write this. You could write rotten or putrid. That's, That's what that means. And as if that needs any illustration, I will illustrate it. The other day, I'm at the house, and Brenda is is in the bathroom, in our, our upstairs master bathroom, and, and she's like, uh, this sink, is it won't drain. And, I, and I'm like, oh, that, that, you know, that's just a simple thing, it's just, you know, I'll take the trap off and, and and fix it. I'm like, let me do it right now. So I grab a couple of wrenches, I t- take the trap off, I'm thinking, well, I'll just clear this thing out real quick, there's probably some hair that's caught up in there or whatever, or just, just undo this. Man, I took that thing off, and the the smell that wafted out made me gag. It was horrible. It's like somebody killed a cat and stuffed it down the drain or something. Man, I'm like, oh, this is horrible. And it's just this black gel. Like, you know, what is this kind of Breaking Bad kind of concoction? of, it was horrible. I'm like dry heaving, taking this thing to the, you know, to try to clean this thing out. It was disgusting. And um, there's donuts after service if, you, if you're rich, they're good. Um, oh, it was horrible. It was rotten. It was putrid. Do we need any more illustration from that? I think not. But here's what we do when we stew on anger. That's the thing. When we stew on anger, what happens? Well, corrupt, rotten, putrid words come out of our mouths, don't they? Yeah, they do. It's horrible. I, you know, it just rings in my head. You know, the Bible's speaking about with, with, with our mouth, we praise God and we curse our brethren. It shouldn't be. It's like, what the heck? You got, you got praises coming out in one second and then the next second, it's, it's, it's you know, breaking bad, gagging, vile, putrid stuff coming out of our mouth. Man. Can I just say this is a really convicting message to put together? It's a convicting message to hear, but when you just keep getting hit, the hits just keep on coming, man. You're studying this and you're thinking, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. And you get to a certain point where you're thinking, What a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body of death? Thank you, Lord. You do. You're loving, you're, you're long suffering, you're forgiving. You promised to cleanse. You promised to set me free. Some of you, you're there, man. And and what happened is right this moment, and and that bullseye has been hit. And the Holy Spirit dealing with you saying, that's you, man. You're angry. You're bitter. You're resentful. And what's come out of your mouth is rotten. It's vile. And you know it. I want you, man, turn turn to Matthew chapter 5. Start in verse 21. Jesus is speaking here. Matthew five twenty-one. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Okay, so what, what we have here is we have a progression as Jesus is speaking. He uses, you know, this idea of being angry, and then he talks about, you know, you say to your brother, Raka, and then you then say to your brother, fool. Now, when he talks about anger, that's, that's taking an offense, okay? So a situation happens, you've taken an offense, now you've become angry. And then there is a progression to it. And, and so, you know, and this is not a stretch for some of y'all, you know, you got the situation right there, um, but we, it's for all of us, it's not too far back in the rearview mirror that we can remember, okay, I'm angry, I've taken an offense, now what's next? Well, the next offense is I call the person a name, that's what it is, I, 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 I lash out, and so he says, you know, you call them raka, raka literally means empty headed, the modern equivalent might be I call you an idiot okay? And, and so, um, you know, there's it's a name and, and it's a corrupt word. It's a vile word. Uh, it goes out and, and so often this is what we do. We take the offense and we lash out and we call the person a name. And then he goes on and when he talks about calling the person a fool, this, this brings their character into question. Because now it's not just you're angry. Now it's not just I'm calling them a name. Now I'm saying, well, you know what? You're, you're a fool. I'm questioning your character. In other words, it's... Look, this is it's not that you didn't know what you were doing or you weren't thinking or you did something stupid. No, you knew good and well what you were doing. You just are a, a you're just a fool kind of thing. And the picture of that might be Nabal in First Samuel twenty-five. You got this guy. Nabal is is the wife of Abigail, and David and his men are out in the the wilderness and all. And they they go and they ask Nabal, "Hey, can you can you provide for us? We always took care of your guys when they're out in the field. We didn't let anybody rob them, anybody get to them. Would you kind of take care of us?" And and Nabal is this wicked guy, and he won't provide for them. As a matter of fact, the description of Nabal in First Samuel twenty-five is that he was harsh and evil in his dealings, and 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 so. You know, this, this is a guy, and, you know, his name means fool. Uh, who, who names their kid fool? But, you know, that's what his parents named him, fool. Uh, and his wife was like, yeah, he is a fool. You know, that, that, that's who he is. But what happens, and what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 5, is that there's this progression that we have to guard against. Because what happens is we get anger, then we start lashing out and calling a person names, and then what happens is now we become the judge and the jury and the executioner all in one. Now we pass judgment on that person. And and the end results, well, it's it's murder in our hearts. And so what we're discovering here in our study through this idea of of anger management, what we're discovering is that there's a pathway for us to follow in managing our anger. The first thing that we've covered is we have to resist that temptation to allow anger to, to, to turn into sin. And and this is where we exercise wisdom and discernment and discretion. Hey, is this righteous anger? Is this unrighteous anger? And then what happens is the next thing. Well, we got to reaffirm the relationship. Look, we we got to not let the sun go down on our wrath. The the next thing is is that man we have to resolve not to take offense. This is what Jesus is, is talking about here. You got to guard your heart. You got to be careful. Yeah, because he, he starts off, look, you should shall, shall hear, you, you, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You call a name, you're going to be in danger of the council. You call him a fool, you pass judgment on him, you're going to be in danger of hellfire. Why? Well, because you've committed murder in your heart. That's the progression. And so, what happens, we can't take the offense. We have to repress our reaction, not call a person a name. We have to reserve judgment for God. And that right there, I know that one hurts. Because we like to judge. And we like to pass judgment. And we like to sit up on our high holy throne and and just call balls and strikes and, and be able to, I've got this one, God. That guy's a fool. And God's like, Last I checked, I'm the judge. You're not. And and God says in his word, who are you to judge another man's servant? You're like, well, because now it concerns me. He's he's ruining my day. God's like, I'm still judge. I'm still the judge. We got to reserve judgment for God. And having done all that, Jesus now says, listen, where there's division, we have to reconcile. Look at verse 23. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift, we're still in Matthew chapter 5, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you, you hear this and you're like, okay. I got it, and I heard Jesus loud and clear, and what I heard him say was that the person who did the wrong has the obligation to go to the other person, right? Yeah, that's exactly what God said. All right, so 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 since they did the wrong, then it's up to them to come to me, and, and if they're not going to come to me, then they can just rot in hell, right? Because that's what Jesus says. Yeah, nice try. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 18. It absolutely is true that if someone has sinned against you, they have the responsibility to go to you to make it right. Absolutely, that's true. But, but Jesus covers the other side of the fence here in Matthew chapter 18. We'll pick it up in verse 15. And here's what he says here. He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you... Yeah, I know, you told me in Matthew 5, he's got to come to me. Yes, he does. But listen what he says here in verse, verse 15 of chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Whoa, I got to go to him? Yes, you do. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that, that by the, the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, verse 16, we, we butcher that. Because I don't want to go to him first. I'd just rather go to the two or three others and tell them about what he did and leave it right there. This is what 99% of all people do when they're dealing with anger. I'll tell everybody else what a loser you are and that's it. Completely unbiblical. The Lord says, no, you, you go to them and you try and work it out just you and them alone. If you can't work it out, now you bring somebody else into the picture, not, 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 to, not to beat up on them, but to, but to have reconciliation. And this is where he goes. He says, man, this is, this is what happens, two or three witnesses, um, so that every word may be established. Verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, take it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you a heathen or a tax collector. The idea there is you turn them over to the Lord. Like they're not behaving like a Christian, they're behaving like somebody who's unsaved. And so what do I do for a heathen and a tax collector? Well, I I don't hate them, I just turn them over to the Lord and I pray for them. I don't have relationship with them, I don't have fellowship with them, but I turn them over to the Lord. See, you you gotta let it go. And what, what God has done here is he's got this redundant system. This make, makes NASA looks, look like minor league. Man, he's got this backup system where basically it's like, look, in every situation, in every relationship, in every circumstance, you have the responsibility to make it right. If someone's sinned ab- against you, you have to go to them. If you've, give, you've sinned against somebody, you have to go to them. Someone else, if they've done the sinning, they have to go to you. If you've sinned against you against them, they have to go to you. Why does God do this? Because... He cares more about the relationship than he cares about what's going on. We're like that as parents, right? Our kids come and they're screaming and there's hollering and there's, I don't care. Just, just get along for crying out loud. You know, it's, I don't care about the issue. I care about you. And, and so, so this is God's heart towards us. He's like, look, I don't care about the issue. I care about you. So I'm going to make both y'all responsible in any situation. It's your responsibility to go make it right. So go make it right. And if I make you both responsible, then, then hopefully one of you will be in the spirit. The other one's being a knucklehead. Then, then God's going to get his will done because somebody in the process is going to go, I'm supposed to go to them. I'm supposed to make it right. And this is, this is the way it works with God. Paul, writing to the Romans, he said this, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, there's the key. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Again, in Ecclesiastes, it says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. What's that scripture got to do with bearing on what we're talking about? Because you both have the responsibility to make it right, both you and the one that you're estranged from. One of you has to help the other up. One of you has to be in the spirit and get this thing right. So it's essential that we go to the offending brother. It's essential that we go not griping or gossiping, but we go with a spirit of reconciliation. It's not an attitude of, I need to win this argument. It's a matter of, we're at odds and we need to be reconciled. And so you go with that spirit of reconciliation. You go with a spirit of gentleness. Proverbs 15.1 says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Hold that thought. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4. And listen again as Paul's talking. He's he's talking, look, you you can be angry. Just don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let those putrid, corrupt words proceed from your mouth. Um, He says, uh, but what is... Good for necessary edification. That word means building up. That's what needs to come out of your mouth. Words that build up your brother. Words that build up your sister. That it may, he continues, impart grace to the hearers. You want to just circle that word grace and and just, just take a walk with that? Because really what is grace? Here's what it is. It's unmerited favor. We receive the grace of God. We don't deserve it. I got pulled over in, in, uh, in, in Murrieta the other night. I, w- I was taking a detour. I wasn't paying attention, and I was going 56 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. And the cop had me dead to rights. I passed him. I, didn't, I wasn't even paying attention. I didn't even see the cop. Oh, but I saw his lights go on. He flips the U.E., pulls me right over. I'm like, oh, man, this stinks. The guy, you know, takes my license, takes my registration. He's like, you know, have you been drinking? No, sir, don't drink. Okay, he comes back. He hands me back my license and registration. He goes, I'm looking for drunk drivers. You have a nice night. I'm like, thank you for your grace. It's grace. I'm like, I love Murrieta PD, man. They're awesome. (laughs) (laughs) How was wrong? Flat out, man, I was wrong. And he gave me grace. Somebody in your life has wronged you. They're wrong. Can you give them grace? Can you, can you do that? This, this is what Paul says. This, this, is the way, this, is, this is how we walk in our wealth in Christ. I have received so much. Man, can I hold my tongue? Can I impart grace to the hearers? He says in verse 30 and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Listen, again, as a father, when my kids are fighting, it does not bring me joy at all. It grieves my heart. And when we are at odds with one another, God is grieved. And so he says, man, don't don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now it's interesting as you go through here, and I'll just do this quickly, but bitterness, Aristotle described bitterness as the resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. And that's what bitterness is. It's this resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation. Paul says you need to put that away. He says we, we also need to, to, to put wrath away. And wrath is an outburst of the moment. He also says we need to put anger away. Anger speaks of a settled disposition. So you've got the outburst of a moment. Hey, I explode and then it's over. Yeah, so does a bomb and it causes a lot of damage. Got to put that wrath away from you. Anger, man, this is is a settled disposition. I'm angry and I'm holding on to this. He says you got to put that away from you. Moreover, he says we have to put away clamor. Here's what clamor is. Clamor is an outcry. Um, Clamor is Twitter. Clamor is Facebook. Okay, clamor is, hey, everybody, Joe is a jerk. Let me tell you about it. That's clamor, okay? He says, put that away. That's, that's, that's not fitting. You can't, you can't do that. Um, and then what happens? Well, we do, we, we're very clamorous, and we're clamorous with, and he says this, evil speaking. God put evil speaking away as well. I alluded to this verse earlier, James 3.16. He says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Take a walk with that, man. And so what is, you put all this together, what's the result? Well, the result is malice. And what is malice? It's the intent to do harm. It's the intent to do harm. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, you know, look, if you've got angry, if you got anger in your heart, you, you're, you're in trouble because what, what's happened, you've heard it said that you're not supposed to murder, but what you're doing is you're murdering in your heart. And this is, this is exactly what Paul is saying here. He goes through this. He says, you've got to put all this stuff away. And here's this progression, man. you you got bitterness. you got anger. you got wrath. You've got, you got more, you know, more anger that you're dealing with. You've got clamor, and you've got evil speaking, and you've got to put all that away because the end result is malice. Man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. That's the attitude that a lot of us carry around. He goes, man... You put that away. That, that's got to be gone from you. Here's where Paul closes the book on the subject, chapter or verse thirty-two. He says, "And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you." Listen, we're called to forgive because we've been forgiven of an ocean of sin writing to the Colossians, Paul said this. He said, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Can I just tell you that's a great verse to write and put on your, your refrigerator? It's an even better verse to memorize. And that's a good verse to memorize. Jesus said in Mark's gospel, he says, Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you of your trespasses. Maybe, you know, you're familiar, and we look at Matthew chapter 18 and Jesus' exhortation about anger. You know what preceded that, right? Basically, what happened is Peter came to him. He's like, hey, Lord, how many times i got to forgive my brother if he sins against me up to seven times? Jesus is like, no, close. Seven times 70. The idea is forever. You've got to forgive. It has to be limitless. And, and just to make sure that Peter got the, got, got the, the point, he told him a parable about, about this, this king that, that had a guy who owed him just lifetimes of debt. And, and you know, the short version is he forgave him the debt. And uh, the guy begged, oh, please, let me go. He's like, all right, all right, just forget it. You don't have to pay me back. Just, just go your way. Well, the guy promptly goes out on his way. He doesn't even get home. Runs into a guy who owes him the equivalent of a few hundred bucks. That guy begs him, please, please, forgive me. I'll pay you back. Same line he gave the king. He's like, nope. Has him thrown in prison. So the king's servants see it. They freak out. They go running back to the king. This guy just did this. You know, what you forgave him, this guy went around, you know, he, he, he owed you lifetimes worth of debt. He couldn't have paid it back in five lifetimes. This guy owed him like half a week's paycheck. And he, and he had him thrown in prison. King's like, you get to go to jail now. Because I forgave you a ton of debt. And you can't forgive? Again, parable is a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. The earthly meaning is God's forgiven you of a ridiculous amount of grievances and offenses. And it pales in comparison to whatever you're angry with right now. Whatever you're stewing on right now. Really? It's not even worthy to be compared. Doesn't doesn't even make the grade at all. So the issue is, man, man, I gotta forgive. Now let me acknowledge this in closing. I acknowledge for some of you, when we talk about forgiveness, for most of us, that arrow just hit home. We got to do business with God. We got some calls to make. We got some forgiveness to make. We got, some, we got to do some work. That's most of us. Some of you right now, you're struggling because you've been profoundly wronged. Some of you are, are, are dealing with, with heinous issues of, of abuse or whatever. And you're like, Pastor Ted, you don't know. When you talk about forgiveness, you have no idea. Yeah, I, I might not know. But God does. And for you, here's what I would say. Romans 12:19 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And for, for those of you dealing with, oh, you have no idea. Look, you don't have to, 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 to carry the candle for vengeance. You don't have to carry that burden. You don't have to be judge, jury, and executioner. God is. And you can turn that person over to the Lord. It's been said, if you hang on to anger, bitterness, resentment, it's like eating poison to get even with your enemy. Because it will only destroy you. And so you, you need to let that go. And, and, and let me say this also about this issue of forgiveness. And I, and I have to do this just because it's important here, just to have the context of, of it all. A lot of people have the impression that the Bible requires that forgiveness is unconditional. And, and let me tell you that that is not biblical. Forgiveness very much is conditional because our forgiveness is conditional. Um, the Lord's forgiveness, man, it's only offered to those who confess their sins and repent. Um, I don't have time for this, but we're going to do it anyway. Just turn real quickly, 1 John, because you've got to hear this. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, and I'm going to get there and just start reading as soon as I get there, okay? First John chapter 1, uh, Verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Do you see a condition there? Absolutely. We need to confess our sins. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, man, the Lord's forgiveness, it's offered only to those who confess their sin and repent. And I want to, David Guzik had a quote on this. I just printed it out, put it on the, the, the screen for you, and I'll just read it verbatim and we'll be done. He says, on the surface, it might seem noble to forgive unconditionally. But unconditional forgiveness is usually motivated more by fear than by love, and because of this, it's usually destructive. For example, if a wife continues to forgive a habitually unfaithful and abusive husband unconditionally, her toleration of his behavior will probably result in even more abuse and disrespect. This kind of, quote, unconditional forgiveness expresses a determination to cling to the status quo. No matter how bad things are, this woman fears that things will probably get worse if she holds her husband accountable. Her passive acceptance of his behavior will probably encourage him to continue in his sin. Instead of her forgiveness being a helpful act of love, it is actually a violation of love that will hinder his growth towards Christ-likeness. So the issue is forgiveness very much is conditional. But you were never excluded from your responsibility to Ephesians 4.31 where Paul says, look, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's the get. If somebody's wronged you and they're unrepentant, okay, listen, you still have to let all of that go to the Lord. You got to turn them over to the Lord. And, And as far as it concerns you, you need to live at peace with all mankind. But there's some relationships that are just toxic. They just are. And those relationships that are toxic or the, or the, or the other person involved in it is, is unrepentant and, and there, is, there is no change in behavior, hey, you forgive them, you turn them over to the Lord, but you're not obligated to reconcile the relationship with them. Do you guys get the difference? It's very important we understand that because Christians misunderstand that a lot.